0: Big dividend pairs are lagging and IPOs are popping. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm David Hansen. Matt Kopeneff still out, so I'm joined by Full One analyst Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here. Matt is out running his 50-mile races like an insane person, but he'll be
1: back tomorrow. He's, he's a big runner. Matt's he's, he's doing races all the time. 50 yeah. miles, 100 miles. He's his, insane. Things that aren't in my league.
0: The Winklevoss twins are on the road to formally having the Bitcoin ETF. I'm assuming you're putting your entire 401k into the Bitcoin ETF when it comes out, is that correct?
1: I'm, I am not going to do that, I'll be avoiding this, but I will say this about Bitcoin. I, I, I'm i still in the camp that thinks that it'll, I, I don't understand it, mm-hmm. and when I think about the mechanics of it, it just kind of shakes my head. And m- so maybe I'm, I'm just naive about it, or maybe this is this is another bubble. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of divided there. What I, For me, the smartest take that anyone has said about Bitcoin was an article in The Economist about six months ago Mm -hmm. where they said, look, even if Bitcoin might fail, and it very very well could, it sort of set the stage for this idea of a new digital currency. Mm -hmm. And the example they used was Napster. So Napster failed, and it was Napster was a bubble, and it, no one uses it anymore, right. and it's pretty much gone. But it set the stage for people to download digital music, which eventually led to iTunes, which was the company that did it right mm-hmm. and said, okay, we're going to charge a small amount for these songs, and we're going to do this right and, and legitimately. I could see something like that happening with Bitcoin, where Bitcoin itself fails, but mm-hmm. it opens up this new door of a new way to do currencies. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next five, ten years. There you go. Your 401k is going all in it.
0: I oh, yeah. It's so, already right. in there. I, I've right. pre-ordered. I've got the Winklevoss Bitcoin ETF on the market order. It's Good. ready. Uh, Good luck. All right. Moving on to the actual first headline of the day. This one is from the Wall Street Journal, Nick Timrose. He says, three factors that could shape the fate of housing overhaul. And he's talking about GSE reform. So reforming uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And he mentions the, the obstacles that, that are in place here in terms of getting actu- anything actually done, whether it be politics, whether it be timing, and he says it's very possible that this could stretch out to 2017. Do you think that's a realistic time frame, or could it be even longer than that?
1: I, I think that's probably optimistic, if anything. You know, the, the majority of mortgages in the United States are 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Those do not come from, the, from private banks. Those, right. aren't, those aren't being issued and held by large banks. Those are almost entirely a function of GSEs. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. If, if we were to significantly overhaul those GSEs or even get rid of them, there would be basically no more 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, especially at the interest rates that people are used to now. In, in, in other countries that you go, you see their mortgage systems. In Australia, in Canada, they have higher interest rates. They have variable interest rates, shorter terms. And they're used to that, but we're used to our system. And I think to overhaul it, people would really get upset and kind of freak out. They, people like their low-rate, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages.
0: And it's, it's interesting, too. We've talked about on the show the people that are buying the common shares of Fannie and Freddie and the preferred shares. And we've discussed that and kind of what's behind that investment thesis. And there is potential for that to work out if the uh, capital base is recapitalized, brought back to the, to the public markets there. But I think it's interesting here. We talk about 2017 and beyond. Okay, even if the preferreds today are trading at around 33% of par, so a very deep discount to par. Even if you're made whole on those preferred shares in five years, okay, so you almost triple your money there. It took five years to do it, which is is a good return. It's around 25% annual returns, but you're waiting five years and you're taking on a, a significant amount of risk. So whether it be Fannie or Freddie and the common or the preferreds or any investment, I think you have to look at, what's the time frame? Is there a catalyst that I'm pointing to and saying, okay, this is going to happen, but it's going to be five to ten years before it happens? I think you have to consider that time value of money there, and that's time that you're not earning returns on that money just sitting
1: there. Right, so there's that opportunity cost you have to consider. That Let's say all goes well and in five years you earn a 25% annual rate mm-hmm. of return. Well, let's say the S&P earns 8 or 9 or 10% as right. it has historically. You need to subtract that from your fanny turn, and that's your real return that you earn. So let's say your excess return is 15% a year. Is that worth the risk you're taking mm-hmm. for the pretty, good op- the, the pretty good chance that you're going to lose everything or lose a lot of your money mm-hmm. in this investment? It's not very tempting. To. It'll
0: be an interesting story, but like we said, this is probably not going to play out for another five, ten years. I definitely don't see it. I'm not a political consultant here or a forecaster, but I have a hard time believing this is going to get done before the next election cycle. But we'll I'm with see. You there. All right, moving on to the next headline. This is a headline that you wrote, and this is actually um, the headline story on Fool.com right now. It is China owns 1.3 trillion of our debt. That shouldn't bother you. So we always hear about China, um, they own all of us, they own all of the debt, they're controlling our, our currency. This isn't really true, right? And why shouldn't that bother us?
1: Well, most of these stories when you're talking about uh, China owning, our, you know, owning all of our mm-hmm. debt and you know, China's our banker, they're filled with hyperbole but very few facts. So So give us the facts. So in this article, I just wanted to lay it out. China owns about eight or nine percent of our debt. I'm sorry, I think it was seven point six percent of our debt. So less than eight percent. That's quite a bit. One point three trillion. That's a lot of money by any amount. Right. the amount of debt we have, it's a small minority of of what they own. Mm Uh, And two, there's this idea that China is funding all of our deficits and there are a banker lending us money. China has seen its holdings of U.S. Treasuries decline over the past two years. So whether they're selling them or they're just not buying more as Mm -hmm. this debt matures, they're, they're, they're not lending us money anymore on top of what they already have through the past years. Uh, and then the, the second point is that why is China lending us all this money? Why, why have they lent us $1.3 trillion? Out of the goodness of their heart, right? It's not the goodness <laughs> of their heart, which, which seems to be what some people think, that mm-hmm. you know they're being nice to us and one of these days they're going to get mad enough and, and just say no more. Mm-hmm. But they're doing it because, because we, uh, we import so many goods and services from right. China. It's nearly half a trillion dollars per year. China really needs that business, and the best way for them to make sure it sticks around is to keep their currency weak against the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. so that we can afford their, you know, their cheap goods. And the, and how they do that is by using their currency, selling their currency, and buying U.S. dollars. That's how they keep that balance in place.
0: Right, so it's really more of a symbiotic relationship rather than saying, okay, we're going to buy all their debt so we can control the fate of them for the next 20 years. Not only is it
1: symbiotic, but you could easily say that China gains more buying our debt than we gain from them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is really a crutch for their economy to have uh, the United States and Europe buy a tremendous amount of cheap goods mm-hmm. uh, from their economy. They're very heavily reliant on exports. And I
0: thought it was interesting, too. We talk about China being, yes, they're the biggest foreign holder out there, but Japan is just right behind them, very pretty much neck and neck, and we don't even talk about Japan buying all of our debt.
1: Right. And you know, To me, that fact alone is really what shows that this debate is much more about uh, just people getting emotional uh, about China for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But yeah, you, you, you look at the foreign holders of U.S. treasuries. China owns $1.3 Japan owns $1.1 1. 1 mm-hmm. And while China, like I said, has been getting rid of their treasuries slowly, Japan is piling them on and on and on. So if, if, if someone really wants to talk about who is our foreign creditor right now, it's just as much Japan as it is China, but no one ever says that. So you can take that as you will.
0: There you go. All right, moving on to our next segment, and we've obviously seen – the market go up enormously this year, up, what, 25%, 26%. Right. Great run. The last six months alone, it's up around 8%. So it's slowed down a little bit. But there are some stocks out there that have been lagging pretty significantly, and especially the big dividend payers. We look at an American capital agency, resource capital, realty income, a REIT that actually owns property and collects lease income off that, Vesco mortgage, all of these down this year. Not just lagging, but down. Yep. Investors have lost money on a price basis here. What's the psychology like when the market's up 25 percent, and you're holding a stock that's down? Do you look at that? Do, do you think people look at that and say, "Man, I just got to cut my losses here and get into the S and P and get into winning stocks," or do you kind of double down on the losers? What's what? Do, what do you think is going through investors' minds there?
1: The temptation, I know, for all of, for these investors, is to cut your losses on these losing dividend stocks mm-hmm. and to go where what's doing well small cap stocks, other stocks in the S&P 500, right. that's the temptation. That's just a natural temptation that people want to do, just chasing what's done well. But I think it, from uh, an asset allocation standpoint, you want uh, securities in your portfolio that are doing worse than others. That's when mm-hmm. you know that you are diverse and you have good Diversification in your portfolio. If everything in your portfolio is going the same direction, everything's going up or everything's going down, that's when you're not diverse. It's really hard for people to understand that because people don't want any of their assets to be doing poorly. But I think over the long run, for a long term investor, if you have years or decades in front of you, that's what you want to see. That's when you know you're doing it right, is when you have a portion of your portfolio that's doing worse than another portion.
0: Yeah, and I think when you have a big laggard like that that's down, what you have to do is not just treat it as, okay, it's down. I think you have to return to the company and say, why is it down? Is there a material change in the business here? What does the valuation look like now? Did I just buy it at a really expensive valuation? Or are there actually business forces and market forces that are causing this? So I think you have to look at it at an individual level and figure out, is this still a good buy today? Should I buy more? And stepping back, and I talked about the dividend pairs that are down. Are you in the camp that thinks that dividend stocks secure big dividend pairs, like a realty income, do you think those kind of got ahead of themselves, or what are, what's your stance there?
1: Yes, I do. I, I think for years, a lot of high-yield dividend stocks, from utility stocks down to uh, to mortgage rates, were looked at as sort of bond proxies. Mm-hmm. So investors who needed, who needed income couldn't really rely on bonds anymore because yields fell so significantly. Mm-hmm. So, they tor- so they turned to high-yield stocks. And you know, I, I really do think that that pushed up valuations quite a bit on a lot of these stocks. Not necessarily all of them, mm-hmm. but on a lot of these companies, yields got got pretty thin there for a while. And I think that's, you know, that's just how valuation works. If you have a high valuation that you start with, the lower returns you're going to have going forward. So dividend stocks had a great run over the last couple of years. I would suspect that they do, won't do as well. Mm-hmm going forward. But I still own a lot of dividend stocks, too, mm-hmm. because I'm going to own them for 10, 20, 30 years, maybe more Right. And I that. think that's
0: the key. You have to own them long enough to get that compounding effect. If you're buying it for a year, that's probably not the best scenario. Because if you can, you can get a year like this year where, okay, great, American Capital Agency, a double-digit yielder. But if the price loses 30% in that year, not so good.
1: You know, if you're holding them for a long time, too, and you're willing to take these cycles, these ups and downs, when these stocks get cheaper, their dividend Mm -hmm. yield goes up. Mm -hmm. And then if you're reinvesting those dividends, you're getting more bang for your buck the cheaper that stock gets.
0: Kind of automatically reinvesting at a lower rate.
1: Right. So if you're holding for 10 years, you should want these stocks to go down. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of my favorite stories in investing is the single best stock to own over a 50-year period from 1953 to 2003. wasn't Microsoft, wasn't Walmart, anything like that. It was Altria, the cigarette Mm -hmm. giant. The reason it did so well uh, is because for decades there was a tremendous litigation risk. People were suing Altria left and right for for good reasons maybe, but let's leave that aside. But because there was so much litigation risk, the stock was always cheap. It always had a very high dividend yield because it was cheap. And if you took that high dividend yield and reinvested it, you just made a ton of money over 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, 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 when I look at dividend stocks going forward, that's kind of what I keep in mind. You should almost want these stocks to be cheap if you're reinvesting that yield.
0: There you go. All right, moving on to our mailbag segment and talking about a stock that has not been going down. And we had a question here from Michael. And his question is, Question about IPOs. Why is it that an IPO like Twitter is priced at $25, but when it opens on the market, the price is $45? So it's a good question there. I'm sure a lot of retail investors obviously watched the Twitter IPO and said, oh, man, I want to get in it at $25, but they couldn't. And then when it went public, it was $45. What's causing this? Why is there that $20 discrepancy there when it actually opens on the market?
1: So it's this balancing act for companies when they go public and the investment bankers that they're working with. Mm -hmm. From the company's point of view, they want to raise as much money as possible. So when a company goes public, goes public, it wants a really high share price so that they can bring in money. Right. The banker, though, that is setting this up, bankers from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or whatever, they need to lure in investors to to buy new shares of this company. Mm-hmm. And the way they do that is by sort of having this under-the-table promise of, we're going to price this just low enough so that you can buy, you can buy shares, and then when it opens, hopefully there will be a nice pop, you can make some money. That's mm-hmm. how they lure investors in. Uh, now, the, the, the balance there is trying to get that right. With Facebook last year, they priced it so high that there really wasn't a pop, and mm-hmm. shares fell soon after. So Facebook did really well. They brought in a lot of money, but the investors didn't. Mm-hmm. With Twitter, we it was almost the other way around, where there was this enormous pop, and shares nearly doubled on the opening day of trading. So that was a lot of money that Twitter left on the table, but it was very good for investors. So from a banker's point of view, you really want to get a balance. And sort of the rule of thumb that bankers use mm-hmm. under the table, they'll probably right. never say this in public, is that what they're looking for is a, is about a 10% pop. Mm-hmm. That's what they want shares to do. So that when you have a 10% pop, you're not leaving a lot of money on the table for the company, but the investors that got lured in, they, they still made some money.
0: Right, and I think it's important to say when you talk about investors, we're not necessarily talking about you and I, yes, it's possible that we could get allocated shares out there through, through our brokerage, but these are usually big institutions, right. pension funds, hedge funds out there. And the way it works is when they go around and market these, these shares that are coming public, they say, okay, we're, we have 70 million shares that we're going to IPO. Why don't you guys tell us what kind of price you're looking for? And they take all this together, and then before it happens, they allocate all those all those shares before it's even open at $26 or $25, whatever Twitter was. And then it kind of goes through the banks and they, they look at the market and say, okay, what's the prevailing price? What's the price discovery that we're going to need to price this at? And that's why you get to the $45. So it's in their hands at, at 26 right? And then the prevailing price at the opening is $45, right. given all of our buy and sell orders fr- from the rest of the public. So right. they do it for price stability. So they can say, Twitter, you're going to get $26, $26 a share on these 70 million shares. We know that for a fact. There you go. Right. As opposed to just saying, here you go, market. Here's 70 million shares. Have fun with it. Right. Uh, the price would be much more uh, instable, potentially. Uh, so they do it for stability there. Not exactly fair, I guess, to the everyday investor, but... Maybe it's kind of just one of those things, that's the world that we live in.
1: And for me, the takeaway from it is that most IPOs, I think, should be avoided. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have companies with more information than, when, than you have. Founders that understand the, better, the company better than you mm-hmm. do want to sell. Right. That should tell you something about who's on the other side of the mm-hmm. trade.
0: All right. So hopefully we answered your question there. You can always email some more questions. We are wtmi at fool.com. You can email your questions there or you can send them Twitter. Uh, we are at TMF Financials. So. More questions are welcome. All right, moving on to the game for the day. We're playing Would You Rather. We have an interesting scenario uh, specifically for Morgan today. And our first scenario is, would you rather have $100,000 in an S&P 500 index fund for the next 20 years or $110,000 in five stocks of your choosing for the next 20 years? So what do you take in the index fund with less money or more money and you have to pick five specific stocks?
1: I think when you're talking, when when you ask people about what do you think about different investments, a better question than saying what do you think about these is to ask what do you do, what do you have in your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So my portfolio is a mix of index funds and about ten or twelve individual companies that I own. So so that's how I invest. If I if I was forced to choose one or the other. I would, uh, I would take the 110000 with five companies. I would make those five companies, though, as diverse as possible. So I would own companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Markel that just by nature of those companies are diverse. So mm-hmm. Berkshire owns 57, I think, subsidiaries, mm-hmm. everything from uh, from ice cream to, in- to insurance. Whatnot. You're getting diversification there. So I, I would try to own companies that are, that are as diverse as possible. To split my bets up, five companies is 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 not many. That's a pretty mm-hmm. concentrated portfolio. So I would try to make it.
0: As but but you off. think that that ten percent more is worth it over time?
1: Yeah, because I think for one, if if you invest in large companies, uh, you know, even five or ten of them will have a very high correlation to the market mm-hmm. over time. So you know, if, if you took. Uh, let's say Berkshire Hathaway, Procter & Gamble, Johnson Johnson, ExxonMobil, uh, and Coca-Cola, let's say. Just mm-hmm. thinking of those five. I'm willing to bet that those five companies will have a correlation with the S&P 500 of probably 90% over mm-hmm. the next t- 10 years. So
0: maybe they're not huge outperformers, but the fact that you're getting maybe a little bit more upfront, it'll be close enough where you'll probably win.
1: Right. You, maybe you'll have a little bit of outperformance, maybe a little underperformance. But it's, it's going to be pretty close mm-hmm. to the index going forward. So, all right. Well, interesting.
0: I thought you were going to choose the index fund, but I was wrong. <laughs> All right, moving on to the final segment of the day on the Twitter sphere. Our first tweet is from Eddie Elfenbein. He says, wow, this is a dull trading day. And this is something that we were talking about before the show. We were saying, hey, there's not much, not much going on this week. It's kind of a quiet week. And I just wanted to say, that's OK. That's fine. You're, you don't have to be scouring the headlines and finding the next crisis. What stock's down 10%, what stock's up 15%. If you're taking the long-term view, it's okay to have a little bit of
1: a boring day. And what, really what I think about as an investor is not what the market's doing, but what businesses are doing. Mm-hmm. So I really don't care what Coke stock did today. What I care is that millions and tens of millions of people went out and bought a Coca-Cola right. today. That's what's going to drive the market <laughs> over the long run, not whether a stock was up 1% or down half a percent. That's right. just noise in the long run. So. We,
0: like, we like the dull days.
1: It, it wasn't that long ago that people didn't know what the stock market did until they got the next day's newspaper. Mm-hmm. And investors did fine back then. You don't need a constant update of what's going on.
0: Exactly. All right, moving on to the last tweet of the day. This one is from Charlie K. He says, Breaking. Council on tallest building says, One World Trade Center is America's tallest building, not Willis Tower in Chicago. First of all, I did not know there was a council... On tallest building. I was going to
1: say the same thing. That's news to me. It must be a fun job, though. Very
0: interesting. Maybe a little bit boring. Um, I don't know how many times they have to meet. I mean, how many big buildings are do we... They, they just have a big... Do we really trade? have to have a council for this? <laughs> um, so, One World Trade Center, now officially the tallest building, surpassing the Willis Tower, as we said there. What is the tallest building you've ever been in?
1: I, I don't. I, I would imagine it was the Empire State Building when I was a kid. I haven't been to any of the tall buildings in Chicago or overseas. I imagine it's the Empire State Building. I, 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 I think I was probably in the World Trade Center at one time or another when I was mm-hmm. a kid, too, but I have no memories of it. But I I'm, think that, I'm pretty I sure think that, I was there. I think that
0: time. was mine. I think I was on top of the old World Trade Centers back in the day, and I'm pretty sure that's taller than the building. That was taller than the buildings in Chicago, if I, if I think, than, than the Hancock Tower or the Willis Tower, but I'm not positive.
1: Maybe. Four floors is high enough for me.
0: There you go, four floors. We're on the the fifth (laughs) floor now, so Morgan's feeling a little bit shaky. Um, All right, so that's our our show for today. If you want to read more from Morgan, your columns are on fool.com Tuesday and Friday, right? Yep. So you just go to fool.com down on the main page. Morgan's got some great columns. Be sure to check Tuesday and Friday for those columns. You're on Twitter as well, correct? That's right, at TMF Housel. TMF Housel, there you go. We are on Twitter again, TMF Financials, and you can email your questions, wtmi at fool.com. That's our show for today. Matt Cope, and we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the motley fool may have formal recommendations
1: for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.